Hello, and welcome to the Did You Know Crypto Podcast. My name is Dustin. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm talking to Andrew Glidden, who is a student at the University of California, Berkeley Law School. And this originated with us trying to figure out on Twitter. It was a misunderstanding on my part as to his actual uh, contention and, and position. But we were talking about the more general topic of what are we going to do in the future when block rewards disappear, when miners no longer get that reward per block being solved, and it's based on a fee market. What if that fee market doesn't work? Well, we're going to talk about that, kind of a thought experiment in real time. But first, if you could help me out a little bit, best thing that you can do, number one thing, is go over to iTunes, leave a five-star and a written review. It helps out so much you have no idea. You can also go to supportmypodcast.com, and there's a variety of things from shopping on our Amazon link to supporting us with Bitcoin through Bitbacker and a lot of other things. So I really appreciate it if you'd head over there. But most of all, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And enjoy the show. Today, I'd like to welcome Andrew Glidden, law student at the University of California Berkeley School of Law, head of legal research for the blockchain at Berkeley Law, and co-author of Distributed Ledger, Te- Ledger Technology Systems, a conceptual framework for Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. Andrew, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know, What do you do? And you know, how did Bitcoin find you? And how did you get yourself into this space? Right. So um, kind of an interesting story um, about how I got into Bitcoin. Um, I originally heard about it in probably 2010 or 2011, so very early on. And I remember sitting in my apartment uh, in Berkeley. I was an undergraduate at the time. And I was sitting in my apartment and I thought to myself um, as I was reading this article, you know, what do we need Bitcoin for? What do we need magical Internet money for? We already have online banking. Um, so I very clearly did not get it, uh, at the time when I first heard of it. Um, and I honestly think the reason for that is that at the time, the marketing around Bitcoin was really bad. It was like, oh, everyone solves complex cryptographic proofs. And like, that's not really how mining works. Um, and, and it just left a lot of unanswered questions for me and I, you know, didn't get it. Um, I'm not a computer scientist by training. Um, so, uh. So yeah, it took me a while, um, and uh, I finally did start understanding it. Actually, um, after I started in in law, um, I started um, I started my legal education in 2016, um, also at Berkeley, um, and uh, just by happenstance uh, was working as a legal intern at Coinbase. Um, and you know didn't know that much about bitcoin like i knew the gist of it um but wasn't really you know super into it and it was kind of just like from working there that it was like you know drinking from a fire hose um and started getting really into it um and then you know co-founded the club uh this blockchain at berkeley law um and then you know through through that uh affiliation and and my own interests uh 
was invited to uh, work uh, together with the uh, University of Cambridge uh, Center for Alternative Finance people uh, on the DLT report, um, which is, I guess, the, the official name for it is Distributed Ledger Technology Systems, a conceptual framework, which is quite a mouthful. Um, but uh, that project, I guess, emerged um, out of Angela Walsh uh, and and some of the legal Twitter uh, criticisms of uh, some things that various legislatures have been doing uh, in the past couple of years, which was kind of uh, enacting marketing hype uh, as statute. Um, and so, you, you know, we saw um, legislation proposed in states like Arizona and even my own state of California um, where, you know, absolutely ridiculous uh, statutory definitions of blockchain that were, you know, internally inconsistent and didn't make any sense and were just, just revealed total ignorance uh, in the legal profession about how this stuff worked. Um, and so my, my interests, um, uh, as far as, you know, legal profession, uh, are in uh, corporate governance and financial regulation. So, you know, when I see uh, a legislature doing ridiculous things in this space, um, it upset me enough that that uh, I joined this project to go uh, to go try to clarify some things. Um, and so the, the gist of the DLT report um, is really just trying to break down how these uh, systems work, how blockchains work, and, and how distributed ledger technology systems more generally work, um, and try to you know identify all the moving parts and how they fit together, and just survey the design space, um, which really covers everything from, um, from the, the technical questions of like how is consensus formed, uh, as well as um, kind of the more mushy questions about like governance and and social consensus as opposed to just like technical consensus around transactions. Um, so that's uh, that's basically what I do. So, what would you classify uh, yourself as? I mean, I, I, I myself, I don't like particular labels, I guess, but but some people uh, do do embrace them. Um, are, are you just kind of undecided or do you kind of fall within a maximalist camp or, or multi-coiner or whatever, you know, these kind of invented labels that we've started to create for ourselves? <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess it sort of depends on, um, on what your perspective is. Uh, technically speaking, I am a no coiner, uh, in the sense that I don't actually own any digital assets. Um, that said, you know there are there are coins that I think are more and less interesting. Um, I think I think Bitcoin, of course, is is probably one of the more interesting ones um, because it has a lot of innovations. People don't think there are innovations in Bitcoin's governance, but I think Bitcoin is much more sophisticated than people give it credit for. Um, and so, from you know, both from a technical perspective as well as a kind of a social and incentive uh, mechanism design sort of perspective. Um, I think Bitcoin is very interesting. I think Zcash is very interesting as far as its cryptography. Um, I think you know Monero has some very interesting uh, interesting ideas ranging from um, 
you know, their, their governance to things like tail emissions, uh, which I think are, are uh, relevant. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that more. Uh, Tezos is probably one of my absolute favorites um, just because of, um, you know, Te Tezos was kind of uh, starting to get talked about right when the Bitcoin Cash, uh, Bitcoin Core fork was happening. Um, you know, they did their ICO that same summer. And, um, you know, at the time there, there was this very real question of like, how do we choose or how does a community choose which side of a fork to pick? You know, when there's a, when there's a contentious fork, a lot of times, most people don't really have strong ideological preferences about like big blocks or small blocks or things like that. Like there may be a better answer objectively, like one of them may be a better system, but for the most part. Uh, I think a lot of users just want to be in consensus with everyone else. Um, and I think when you see more, more complex um, chains like Ethereum that are trying to be, you know, a general purpose uh, blockchain um, with very rich uh, scripting capabilities, um, that can actually lead to problems when there are forks, because, you know, if there's an, if there's like an internet of things device that's plugged into Ethereum every device like that is going to have to choose which part of the fork it stays on um, because those transaction histories are not going to um, are not going to be compatible. Um, and so I think Tezos was actually really interesting um, because if it works uh, as designed, it's kind of a fork proof chain, um, which I think is is very interesting from uh, from kind of a governance perspective and and as far as an enabling technology for for a lot of uh, applications. Um, those are probably my biggest ones. Uh, you may have noticed a a trend. You, uh, you know, I didn't mention that Ethereum was one of my favorite coins. Um, I, I think the the broad theme of all of them is that uh, as far as use cases that I see personally. Um, I think a lot of people try to go overboard with things like decentralized social media or or whatever other application. And I think um, when you really get down to it, um, the killer app of blockchains is going to be financial technology primarily. Um, and so you know you you see the the trend is you know Bitcoin, Monero, Zcash, Tezos, th things that are that try to stay true to that focus rather than just being like let's have consensus computing for everything. And uh, to, to go back just a second, but I, I did want to talk about the, the, the fork proof with Tezos, but uh, you not actually owning any, is that uh, because of a, you know, a, I guess, you know, some people don't because of the, where they work or what they do, or is it just that it's, it, it's interesting to you, but not interesting enough to own or what's kind of your reasoning behind uh, not owning any of them? Uh, let's put it this way. I'm in law school and it would be financially irresponsible for me to be making speculative investments while I've got six figures of non-dischargeable debt. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. Okay. I understand. <laughs> um, no, it, it, it's not that I don't love, uh, love the industry and love the technology. Um, but it's just, you know, you have to make the decisions that, that are feasible for you. Um, no, no, that's that's understandable, and and uh, and yeah, especially in a position where you have high amounts of debt, yeah, speculative investments are usually uh, a, a pretty good uh, path to go down towards 
Although I, I guess, you know, while I'm talking about speculative investments, I am in law school, so maybe I'm. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it was uh, interesting. We, we talked about um, why, why do you find a, a governance model that would, that would disallow or heavily disincentivize forks to be, um, in, you know, why, why does that interest you? Why, uh, why are you, I guess that would infer that you have an issue with, with forks in, yeah, in particular. So I think, um, th there are a couple reasons and, and the, the fork proofness of Tezos is really only one of the, the things that I think is interesting about the governance aspect. Um, when you look from a legal perspective, um, there are lots of complications that forks create, you know, there, there are questions for like IOT devices of like, you know, updating them and, and making sure they're in consensus and on the right chain. There are also a lot of legal questions. Like if you have, um, if you have say Bitcoin and there's Bitcoin cash that, that forks off of it, um, the question is if that if your keys are being held by a custodian, you know, Coinbase being being kind of the prototypical custodian in the United States uh, for most users, um, when a fork happens, if if that custodian has the keys, um, what are the legal rights and responsibilities of each party? Um, you know, there are lots of people who say. Well, of course, I own the Bitcoin, so I should own the Bitcoin Cash too, right? Um, and that's a perfectly reasonable view. But there's also this tension between, like, well, not your keys, not your coins, right? Technically, it's Coinbase who has the keys, um, and you know anyone can make a fork at any time. So you know why should Coinbase necessarily have to be on the hook for devoting engineering resources to supporting, you know? literally anyone's shitcoin fork of Bitcoin, um, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense to say that, that a custodian like that is liable for supporting literally every fork ever created by anyone at any time. Um, and, and so I think the, the fork proofness of Tezos, um, to the extent it, it turns out to be a real thing, um, and I should emphasize that Tezos is not truly fork-proof. At the end of the day, it's designed to disincentivize forking, but you can always go in um, and and modify the source code, and you, like you'll have a different network, right? Um, so it's it's not truly fork-proof. It's really um, it's I really see it more as a mechanism for um, creating shelling points. Um, and a shelling point is kind of the, the natural thing that people gravitate to in the absence of information. So like if, if I gave you a picture of a stranger in New York City and said, go find this person, they have your picture too, but you have to find them in New York City, like how are you going to find them? Well, you're probably going to go to the Empire State Building observation deck at noon, right? Yes. Like that, that's, that's the, the ordinary, you know, it's, you go to the building that is most recognizable at the time that's most recognizable and people can coordinate around that in a decentralized way. Well, the problem with something like Bitcoin cash or Bitcoin core and trying to choose what side of the fork you want to be on is for most people, all they want is to be on the side of the fork with most people on it. 
and you get this Keynesian beauty contest where people aren't actually expressing their preferences. They're expressing the preferences that they imagine other people to have. And you see why that could create a lot of instability, I hope, um, you know, where, where good innovations don't get adopted and bad innovations do get adopted just because there was, you know, misinformation about them floating around. Uh, so that, that's the sort of thing that I think is, is really interesting about Tezos. Um, the, the mushier factors of, of, you know, how does the law deal with these assets or, um, or how do we deal with them from like a coordination perspective, not so much like the, the raw technology, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it was interesting. I did an interview with, with Caitlin Long a while back. Um, and, and that was one of the things that we talked about was what would be the legal requirements for, uh, we, this is more going along with with backed um, and and mm -hmm. Wall Street players starting to move in, but you know if you're holding, uh, uh, you know Bitcoin in your portfolio and an ETF or whatever, what is their responsibility towards something like? I, I think as these as we go along, these forks are becoming, you know, less and less and less valuable. Or I mean, the, we have seen that. But you know, say a fork came along that was similar to, to Bitcoin Cash. And and had a you know a, a decent amount of value, uh, you know what rights would the uh, you know individuals holding that ETF or whatever instrument uh, within Wall Street have to that for, or would that company just get to eat up all that and 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 take that in as profits? I'm assuming that would probably be within the legal wording of the contract when you when you in, in, engage uh, with them, uh, depending on whatever instrument that you use. But if they weren't careful, I, I imagine that that could be extremely dangerous for a financial institution if they're not prepared for something like that. Yeah. And, and, and that is a, a real problem, right? Because there, there are all kinds of um, fiduciary duties that you can contract out of. Um, but you have to know what they are before you can contract out of them. And, and there is always going to be that, you know, common law backstop, um, of fiduciary duties and and you know there are lots of theories as to you know what to do with um with things like forked assets um one theory that i'm uh sympathetic to is uh that we should treat forked assets as involuntary bailments uh which basically means that um whoever is the custodian um cannot take ownership like they can't if there's a fork like bitcoin cash they can't sell the bitcoin cash and and have it be theirs um, or have the profits be theirs, um, but neither are they under an affirmative obligation to support it. It's kind of just like they have to they have to maintain a list of the keys that they used. So they're not like affirmatively destroying the coins, but they don't necessarily have to create a mechanism for for valuing them or dispersing them to people or you know things like that. And like if they want to, they will. And I think that for any major fork, any any financial institution is going to see value in supporting withdrawals or trading or whatever on that fork. Like if you're Coinbase, for example, um, it makes sense to support Bitcoin Cash because you're going to be getting the transaction fees from people trading that. Um, but you should never be in a position where Coinbase can just take the Bitcoin Cash for itself, you know. Um, so that's kind of the theory of involuntary bailments, which I think is one of the more interesting ones. Um, but you know there are there are many competing theories, um, and and this is the sort of thing that courts haven't settled out, um, and 
you know, we kind of just have to wait for um, for a controversy to hit the courts or for for a legislature to take up that issue um, before we can really get uh, clarity on that. You know, for the time being, it's just, you know, theorizing. <laughs> yeah, and that's it, it kind of gives me a little bit of pause because, I mean, we saw you know with the with the digital millennium uh, I, can't, I can't remember the exact name of it was it millennium copyright DMCA? Yeah, yeah and a lot digital of the millennium copyright act yeah as we saw with with those those earlier leg, pieces of legislation that uh, it, it kind of betrayed a lack of really understanding of the internet and and at least to me and and you kind of see this especially with the reset hearings with uh, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, and I know a lot of it's spliced together, fun clickbaity articles to show, you know, the old men, you know, asking these ridiculous questions, but it it does show kind of this lack of understanding where they're asking questions of that they, they don't understand, you know, what encryption is or what the difference between chat and email. Um, and it kind of gives me a little bit of pause when we're talking about, you know, legislation and court rulings on these sorts of things that, I mean, even in the cases of DNA, I mean, it was a lot of years before courts and juries would really, really understood that, uh, you know, how, how definitive DNA was for identifying a, a very specific individual versus, say, you know, something like fingerprints that was, quote, unquote, tried and true. Sure, sure. And I, th I think it's honestly, um, if, if I can defend the courts for a minute, um, you know, part of this is me defending the, the legal cartel, I suppose, but uh courts uh judges juries uh are i think more sophisticated than people give them credit for um oftentimes when you have um when you have those sorts of cases it's true that um that a judge might be a little bit behind the times as far as technology um but they do have you know lawyers on both sides of the bar are are going to be you know presenting their case and part of that will be introducing expert witnesses you know, the expert witnesses will be educating the judges before there's any sort of ruling. Um, and by and large, judges are very smart generalists. So it's true that they may not understand the particulars of any technology in any like great depth. Like you're not going to get um, a judge who's writing encryption proofs or, or systems of encryption to, you know, generate zero knowledge proofs or things like that. But um you know, if you explain the basic idea behind a proving system or, uh, you know, what is Bitcoin, what is a fork, things like that, they'll get it. They'll get it. Um, and you see a little bit less of that with legislatures, I think, because they're elected. Um, and, you know, when, when someone is elected, um, they're trying, they're more sensitive to like public relations sort of issues. And so there's kind of more of an incentive to like, oh, let's go do something. We don't know what it is that we're going to do, but we want to signal to the industry that we like them. And that's the sort of thing that that a lot of states uh, in the U.S. have been doing lately. You know, they want to pass a blockchain bill just so they can be on the books as having a blockchain bill because blockchains are cool now. Um, Wyoming is a very notable exception to that trend where the the legislation coming out of Wyoming um, is is pretty substantive. Um, but the legislation coming out of a lot of other states, not so much. Um, but again, judges, um, I think for the most part, are, are much more sophisticated than a lot of people give them credit for. And, and I would also say that um, 
as far as uh, dealing with a lot of these issues, they don't really require a lot of technical sophistication for the most part. Um, you know, when, when you're dealing with something like who owns a forked asset, um, you don't need to know how Bitcoin works in any great detail to be able to answer that question. We have a long established body of property law and applying that property law to this new context, you know, it, there will be some bumps along the way, um, but for the most part, it's a continuation of a very long tradition rather than something truly revolutionary. So uh, I guess if we wanted to dive into the the issue that that we kind of uh, had spoken about on on Twitter, well, I guess I'll give the background. Uh, so the basic background was me slight, uh, overreacting. I, I didn't research uh, the context, you know, kind of true Twitter style uh, to a tweet that I saw that you respond to of Nick's. And this is something I'm trying to do a better job of, actually. So I appreciate your ability to continue the conversation uh, in the midst of my own uh, bad behavior. But uh, so the conversation had been about uh, killing ancient coins uh, sensibly ones that haven't been moved for, you know, a, whatever period of time, five years um, was the number thrown out there, but, and then allowing them to be, I guess, recycled into the network to be, uh, to continue the block reward for miners. But yeah. So before I, we, I guess, why don't I, why don't I go and just kind of give the, the whole background to that? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. If we can just kind of go over. Yeah. So, so a while ago, uh, Nick Carter, um, who I'm sure a lot of your audience will, uh, will know about, um, Nick, uh, raised an interesting, um, tension in, in Bitcoin, which is that, um, it had to do with the, the fee market around transactions and the, um, and the block size debate, the perennial block size debate. Um, and the basic idea is this, um, if blocks are not full, so if they're if they're anything less than 100% full, um, then it is irrational to post a transaction um, or a transaction fee, I should say, um, that is anything greater than zero, because the the tiniest transaction fee imaginable is still rational for a miner to include in a block. You know, even even if the transaction fee is only one satoshi. Um, a miner is still going to include that transaction because there's literally no cost to not doing that. Um, it's otherwise it's just leaving money on the table. Um, but the problem is that if that's the case, then there will not be enough uh, money spent on transaction fees to actually support miners' um, operational costs. Um, as we know, um, the the hash power that goes into Bitcoin. Um, in the long run is going to be such that the marginal cost of, um, of mining should equal the marginal benefit of mining. And if the marginal benefit of mining in, in the long run, when, when the block reward has gone to essentially zero um, or equal to zero in the very long run, um, the, the network needs to be sustained entirely by transaction fees. Um, the alternative is that there is a, a fee market that develops, and that can only happen when blocks are full. But if blocks are full, then people start getting into this 
bidding war for you know getting their transaction included in a block and the challenge there is that we can we can get the volatility that we saw um i guess that was in uh in the the run up to about 10,000 um i guess that was a, about a year ago a little over a year ago um where you know transaction fees on the bitcoin network were going as high as like $50 a transaction um, and, you know, they took a, a while to settle down. There were lots of transactions that were just getting stuck. And, um, and that's, that's a fee market that will support miners, but it doesn't really create a very usable network. Like you're not going to be able to buy coffee with that. Um, and so a, a lot of people are, you know, rightly saying, well, you shouldn't be buying coffee with an on-chain transaction. That's just, you know, consuming the commons that is block space you know you should be using something like the lightning network and that's exactly right you should be using the lightning network um, the lightning network can do a lot as far as improving transaction throughput um, it's a very very cool innovation um, but here's the problem uh, if if every transaction for buying coffee goes onto the lightning network then the transactions that are going on chain have the same basic problem that they used to, which is either that there aren't enough opening and closing transactions to support the miners, or in the alternative, uh, the blocks are full. And what happens if blocks are full when all the transactions are opening and closing lightning channels? Then you get a problem where you get routing failures for lightning, or people will start uh, submitting closing transactions and watchtowers won't be able to react in time. And you know people won't be able to use the justice transaction and entire channels could get drained because of congestion on the network. Um, you know, is, is that something that's gonna be good for Bitcoin or not? Uh, I would submit not. Um, and, and so, there's this tension, right, where we want there to be enough of a security spend so that miners are, are you know, hashing so that people don't get double spent, um, so that we have confidence in the transactions that are being recorded in the blocks. Um, but we also want to make sure that the, that the fees are low enough that, that they're usable and that there's a little bit of slack in the um, in the system to accommodate fluctuations in demand, um, at least enough where the mempool can can periodically clear out um, so that transactions don't get stuck. Um, and you know there have been a bunch of solutions that have been proposed for this. You know, one solution is that you have like a dynamic block size limit. You know, and Ethereum does something like this. Um, but the problem with the dynamic block size limit is, you know, how do you how do you determine algorithmically what demand is going to be? Um, it's a hard question. You know, how do you have? You know, say say we want to target a particular security spend. Um, so we say, you know, the block size can adapt until a certain amount of fees are collected. Well, you know, then that introduces more attack surface. You know, people could try to um, people could try to put in false transactions. Like a miner could just flood a block with its own transactions, spending to self, um, as a way of manipulating the block size limit or or something like that. 
Um, or, you know, there's a question of if, if you are trying to target a particular security spend, how do you know what the real value of, of that spend is? Like the spend is denominated in Bitcoin, but in reality, that's kilowatt hours of electricity, which have a price denominated in US dollars or, or some other asset. Um, and so trying to trying to map a Bitcoin denominated spend onto real resources like coal uh, is really hard to do in a in a decentralized way. Then we start getting into the Oracle problem. You know, how do we have confidence in in uh, information that's getting posted uh, to the blockchain for for reference purposes? Um, these problems start getting really mucky and um, and they massively increase the attack surface of the protocol. Um, and, and so there are some, some pretty nasty trade-offs associated with that. Um, now, something that Monero does that, that I think is interesting is they say, well, why don't we just have uh, the supply be technically uncapped? Like let's have tail emissions where the block size or the block reward never goes to exactly zero. And that way we will ensure that there is always some amount of security spend. Um, and that's that's one solution that's pretty interesting. The problem is that with something like Bitcoin, there is a very, very strong social consensus that 21 million is the maximum number of Bitcoin that will ever exist. Um, and that constraint turns out to be really difficult to deal with because it means you can't do something like uh, tail emissions. So, you know, what's what's left, right? Um, and, and at this point, I want to emphasize that the assumptions are that a healthy fee network has not developed. Um, this is after the, the block rewards have essentially gone to zero. So this is a problem that is highly, highly speculative. Um, it's many, many years out from now, um, and there may be, you know, changes in circumstances. Um, so, so bear with me as I, as I describe, uh, the okay. solution, uh, or the, um, not solution, but the proposal, um, that, that a lot of, uh, Twitter was very upset by. Um, and, and that is, look, if, if we take these assumptions that there there is no block reward. There is no ability to adjust the 21 million cap. There is no ability to um, to dynamically scale um, the block size. And there's no fee market, and that's that's the most important part. Like there is no fee market in this situation. How do we get the security spend that we need? Um, and so one possibility is we say, look. Um, instead of changing the 21 million cap, we know that coins are burnt all the time. Like coins are spent to unspendable addresses or people lose their private keys or things like that. So why don't we just create a presumption that any coin that is, you know, some number of years old, five, 10, 20, whatever, um, some some number of those coins, um, if they're really old, are probably lost forever. 
Um, and like, I recognize that there are people like Satoshi whose coins haven't moved and Satoshi may be alive or may have, may have left the, uh, the keys to his or her or their grandchildren. Um, there are people who want to save for the very, very long term like that. Um, and, and I can see that. Um, but there are also a lot of people whose coins are just permanently unspendable. And so one possibility is that we say, look, why don't we invalidate those old coins and so if we reissued those coins, um, we would be able to stay within the social consensus of you know, the 21 million cap um, at the cost of invalidating old coins. Um, now, for the people whose coins have been burned, um, that's not a problem. Like They were never getting that. The, nothing is being taken from them, right? Um, the only people that that would hurt are the people who are saving for the long run. And, um, and I think a lot of people see this as being, you know, confiscation from them. Um, and I submit that it's not. And the reason it's not is that it's only the old coins that are getting burned. And so what someone can do if they're concerned about this is they just ping the network. So if, if the time frame is say five years, that just means you ping the network once and you say, Hey, I'm spending my old coins to myself. Um, as just, you know, refreshing that, yes, this UTXO is still good. Um, and then, you know, once the old coin will, will have been spent and there will be a new coin generated, and then it's not a five-year-old coin anymore. It's a zero-year-old coin. Um, and so the idea is that people who are saving for the long run, um, it's true that if they do nothing, then, yeah, they're going to lose their money. But I would think that it's a relatively minor inconvenience to just you know spend to self once every five years, um, just to you know assert that you do still own the keys and that you do still have an interest in that Bitcoin, um, and if you think about it, this is actually how our banking system uh, and our and our laws already are. Like if you have um, if you have a bank account that you haven't touched in five years, um, the money in that bank account goes to the state. And you still have a legal title to it um, in in the in you know the world of fiat money. Um, if, if you go to the state and say, "Hey, I remembered about this bank account or a bank account that I used to have 15 years ago," um, the state will refund the money in that bank account. Um, so that possibility doesn't quite exist um, here um, because there's no way to you know get your Bitcoin back um, once it's been lost, but um, but the basic principle that if you just assert an interest in your property periodically, then everyone in the system will know that you the property is still yours and and it shouldn't go back to society as a whole. Um, and for the anarchists in the room, uh, I realize that I've committed the mortal sin of equating government and society, and I promise that was... Uh, <laughs> that's not something I actually believe that government is equivalent to society, but you know, it's, uh, it's a shorthand, um, society as a whole. Um, and, um, and so I think for something like the Bitcoin network, um, that's a solution that allows us to stay within the social consensus of, you know, 21 million coins and no more so that we don't have to do something uh, drastic, like increasing the attack surface by have, by implementing a dynamic block uh, block size, or you know 
having tail emissions, things like that. Um, and, you know, it was interesting to see the controversy about this. Uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, it's funny uh, being called a status bootlicker on Twitter. Um, I really am anything but. Um, that's what Twitter's for. But yeah, that's what Twitter's for. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, this, this is like, you know, we have these conversations now because one, we want to gauge what people's reaction is to them, you know, just, just to, just to get a sense of what the community sentiment is. I mean, the community sentiment was very hostile and I think we learned an interesting lesson from that in itself. Um, but there's also the issue that, um, when a crisis hits, um, the reactions or the responses to a crisis are the ideas that are on the table at the time the crisis hit. Um, and if ideas don't get talked about before there's a crisis, then people are going to go off and do something completely half-baked. And so even if this idea is something that people absolutely reject and would never consider under any circumstance, the point is that we're talking about it and we've had this discussion that, no, we're not going to consider this under any circumstance. So that if the, if a crisis hits, we know that it's off the table. Um, and, um, you know, I, I want to emphasize it's a very, very speculative problem and it's years and years out. Um, but we talk about it so that we can keep a sense of the of the history of ideas and know what are what's on the table and what's not. Um, because we don't want to get caught with our pants down. No, so no, that's, it, it, uh, and that's the gist of it all. Hey, folks, I hope that you're enjoying this episode as much as we are. I don't have any sponsors, so if you could go over to supportmypodcast.com, you'll see all the different ways that you can support the podcast from Amazon links to a bunch of other stuff. You could back us on Bitbacker with crypto. But most of all, if you can go to iTunes and leave a five-star and a written review, it'd be very, very helpful. So thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the show. No, and I, I agree. And and my I was just one of those people. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't call you a status bootlicker, but uh, I, I did uh, kind of just it was one of those times where it just kind of catches you during the day and you're just oh, and you let the outrage um, uh, jump in without actually kind of looking through backwards of the context. And you kind of made that a lot more clear towards the end of just going like you're you're mistaking that this is uh, this is something that we are, you know, putting our reputations on the line for more than just talking about it. So I, I 100% agree. This is the time we need to be talking about the problems that are one, five, 10, 50 years in the future so that we get a lot of this fleshed out now. Right. Um, my, you know, I guess uh, just to, just to, since I, I did it on Twitter, but I, I haven't done it on, uh, you know, audio version on the podcast, but just to register as a very basic uh, counter argument of what my issue was, is that it, it always rang very um, kind of uh, in a sense, kind of the, the anarcho communist kind of ideal of, you know, personal, not private property that, you know, you have to occupy that space for it to be considered your property. And that's kind of where it rang with me of like, you have to constantly um, um, make a physical action on your own property to register yeah, that, that you, that you still have ownership over it. I mean, I, I, thinking about it. Well, you, you do though. Yeah. You do though. I mean, in, in, in the world that we have today, I mean, I, I realize that I'm assuming a government existing, um, but you know, if, if you have um, property in, 
you know, real property, like, um, like, actually, like when I say real property, I don't mean physical property, but like land, right? When you have land, um, you can be the property owner, but if you let that land go completely untouched, so untouched, in fact, that you don't even notice when someone has built a, a shack on your land and has been living there for 15 years, like if you're that asleep at the wheel, the government will not recognize your title to that land anymore. The government will say, no, you were so asleep at the wheel that it belongs to the guy who owned, who built the shack and has been actually living there. Right. So, so we do have this precedent and that, that doctrine is called adverse possession. Um, if, if someone possesses your property, like you may be the owner of it, but if someone possesses it in a way that is adverse to your interests and does so openly for for a long period of time, you've surrendered your claim to that property. Um, and, and I realize a lot of the anarchists in the room are probably very uncomfortable with that idea. Um, but I mean, in, in a world of scarcity, that system actually makes quite a lot of sense, right? Because if, if you have like an apple orchard or something and you haven't been using it, those apples are just falling and rotting on the ground. Like, shouldn't someone be able to use them? Um, if, if your answer to that is no, then the implication of that is that you're using your property not to derive any any personal benefit from it, but simply for the purpose of excluding people. And, um, you know, in, in the short term, that sort of behavior is, is maybe acceptable. Like maybe you're, you're holding out for a better use, right? Like, sure, it's an apple orchard now, but maybe you want to put an apartment building there. And so for some period of time, yeah, there's going to be some waste. Um, but in the long run, um, to just let resources go completely to waste, I mean, getting no economic value whatsoever, that's really not something that that most societies uh, will countenance. Um, and I think recognizing that reality is is something that um, that we should do. Um, you know, whether or not we agree with it, uh, personally, um, we should recognize that that is most what most people's sensibility is. And it, you know, if we're talking about Bitcoin as a social system, we have to recognize that that the system needs to be something that um, isn't itself going to incite uh, unrest, you know? No, and, 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 and I can understand the perspective of not letting land or assets just kind of lie fallow and, and, and not be unused, but I, I have an intense amount of trepidation of, of, um, of setting a, a, a precedent because right now, yeah, I mean, we do we do have that in the physical world, uh, in, in various government structures and legal um, um, frameworks, depending where you, where you at, are, you know, live and and uh, under what jurisdictions that you fall. But w within Bitcoin right now, we don't have that. Uh, the the world of of Bitcoin um, of this, you know, uh, code is law, I guess in a way. Uh, <laughs> that that we live in currently is that the the code has as and as people have entered into agreements you know by owning you know utxos and holding on to them at the at the point of 
ownership at the point of 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 becoming owners of those and holding those private keys the the deal was you know the law was you know i can hold on to this and i can have it deeded um you know to my great grandchildren and ostensibly if i think that bitcoin's going to be extremely you know uh, valuable in the future this is going to set up my family down the road i may not need this money right now i may not need the you know i got $30,000 laying around so i buy you know, uh, roughly, what would that be? Uh, uh, eight or so Bitcoin, and I set this aside, um, and and I have this willed with this understanding. And we kind of talked about this in Twitter as well as you know, maybe you could have whoever is being the administrator of your will would also maybe have the private keys or pieces of those keys, and and whoever had the pieces would have to come together every so often. I mean, that could be a fix, but I, I kind of right, I, right. I have a so, lot of trepidation about going like we've entered into this. At this point, with this understanding of this is what the governance is, and then kind of now, you know, down the road, now your heirs have lost their ability to hold on to this uh, because it changed in between uh, the time that you bought it, passed away, and, and coming to them. Right. So, so definitely changing the rules as a system develops. Um, that that is something that I think um, everyone should have a little trepidation about, right? Because the people should be able to have confidence in the system of rules that they signed up for. Um, but the the flip side of that is that um, when you're looking at something like property rights, right? Property rights are rights. I mean, it's it's in the name, right? Um, and rights are not things that just exist in the ether. As, as pure constructs. Um, rights are fundamentally social uh, concepts in that um, you only have a right as against another person. Robinson Crusoe, alone on an island, doesn't really have property rights because there's no other person on the island that he would need to enforce against, right? Like, if, if a hurricane comes and washes away all his coconuts... Um, did he own those coconuts? Well, evidently not, right? Nature took them away from him. Um, he only owns something as, as kind of a, a shorthand for, um, or I say ownership is, is a shorthand for, um, a, a set of rules about what other people may or may not do. And there's really no perfect reason that can be um, established from from first principles that is you know universally true about what exactly property is I mean when, when you look at uh, things like um, like pollution rights for example you know there is for, for a very long time people said um, you know, you have the right to do things with your property, like you have the right to burn coal. Um, and then at some point, people said, wait a minute, there are externalities um, on, you know, burning coal. And so maybe we want to have systems in place that reduce those externalities. So maybe we want to do something like have a tax on pollution, or maybe we want to implement uh, something like cap and trade for sulfur dioxide. Um, to prevent acid rain or, or the other externalities of, you know, burning coal. And, and so like property rights do change as 
the social context changes. And remember, again, this is a very speculative problem that's years out. And the basic, the basic question in my mind is not, should we do this? Like, should we start invalidating people's coins willy-nilly? Like, of course not. Um, people should have confidence in the rules that they create. But if we get to a point where the alternative is just Bitcoin dying altogether because it doesn't have a sufficient security spend, maybe the lesser evil in that situation is to invalidate the coins that people haven't touched for God knows how long. Because, you know, leaving open the possibility that if they weren't burned, then people being aware of them would just issue some transactions to spend to self to, you know, reassert their property claims. Um, so it's, it's not really in my mind something where people are going to be, you know, expropriated left and right. It's, it's really more of a situation of imposing a minor inconvenience on people, you know, every five years or 10 years or however long. Um, just, just periodically having this minor inconvenience so that people can register that they do still in fact own something. Um, and otherwise we set the default presumption that if there isn't an owner actively claiming it, um, after it reaches a certain age, it just goes back to the community as a whole. And by the community as a whole, what I really mean is it gets, um, reincorporated as a block subsidy so that there can be a, a sufficient security spend for the network so that the network just doesn't become susceptible to 51% attacks left and right. Because at, at the end of the day, we have this trade-off where we're trying to ensure that the people who are actively using the network um, are able to do so. And their right to use the network is being put in tension with the people who want to, you know, hodl for 50 years. Um, and, and I think when you when you frame it as a question of um, comparative institutions, um, you know, rather than saying we're just going to expropriate people, if we say, you know, we have a system that on one hand imposes an inconvenience, but it allows the network to function, um, I think you get a much more nuanced picture. Um, and, you know, is, is, is the system of invalidating and reissuing coins the right one? Um, I don't know. It's it's a problem that's years out, and and that problem may never even emerge, right? Because part of the assumption is that there isn't a healthy fee market that develops. Um, but you know, we, I think we do need to be thinking in terms of trade offs and who benefits and and who's harmed by any given proposal, rather than just saying categorically like property owners always take precedence over everything else, even at the expense of people who are actively trying to use the system. And, and uh, I guess not to continue to keep on beating the dead horse, but uh, it, one of my other issues with that is like, even if we, we did agree that this would be a, a good idea to do, I, I would see it as, as just being a, a stopgap for, for a short period of time, because very quickly, most of those people whose coins got burned would be people who, you know, threw their, you know, hard drives in the trash or whatever back in the day, um, or people who were hodling who do actually lose their coins and didn't realize because, you know, they, they never paid attention after they bought some in, you know, 2013 or 2015 or whatever, and still haven't gotten down. But um, I would I would imagine after that first, you know, basically Bitcoin rapture of early coins, 
uh, and them getting, re, you know, reinfused into the block rewards that sooner or later we would be at that same point again, that very quickly all the people remaining people who had coins would, and I'm sure that there would be apps developing and, and things like that, that would automatically move your coins to reset that clock every so often. And pretty soon, I, I imagine you would not, you know, that the, the returns would diminish um, quite quickly uh, in in this thing. And I, I to me, um, and this will be kind of the last thing I say on it because I don't I don't want to keep on harping on it. But to me, it, I, I think that the trade off for for kind of the violation of of property rights for something that's not sustainable in the long term, um, uh, you know, like it, it's it's to me not not worth it um but i mean like you yeah you know and and yeah that that's that's an absolutely valid view to have right um you know again i'm not i'm not pushing this as like this is what i want to do with bitcoin right now or or even potentially ever um it's it's really just a thought experiment and and it's it's on each of us to you know decide where we think the reasonable trade-offs are and and you know find a community um that shares our vision and if we don't like whatever vision you know if if one group of people says we don't have a healthy fee market you know they can go fork off and and make their their version of bitcoin where there is um this uh, adverse possession system and if there are people who want absolute property rights then they have their system and at the end of the day there's going to be a consensus that will develop around one or both of those visions um you know there there's there's a real like one of the one of the greatest things about one of the greatest things about um the governance of these systems is that they are anarchic so people can go and and try new things right like bitcoin cash i don't know how but it's the chain is still alive, you know. There is a community, however small, that's been that's been developed around that, and so people have the ability to do this sort of experimenting. The other thing I would say about your concern, though, um, is that I take issue with the, the premise a little bit um, for two reasons. One is the first tranche of coins that would be invalidated under this proposal is a lot of coins, and when you look at the current Coinbase transaction, um, the the mining subsidy. Um, the current rate of issuance is relatively small compared to the number of coins that would otherwise be invalidated. So I think it's it's not something where we really just say, oh, that's only a stopgap measure. I mean, that gets us a lot of time, um, and and that's that's not something to minimize. The other thing is that there is, I think, um, more or less a constant burn rate. Like people lose their keys um, on average, you know some percentage or some fraction of a percentage every year. And so eventually we reach an equilibrium where the rate of burned coins becomes equal to the rate of issued coins. And and that's an equilibrium um, that is in a sense market established in the same way that, that fees should be market established. Um, it, it doesn't rely on us to use something that would increase the attack surface of Bitcoin by you know doing something like an algorithmically determined dynamic block size you know we we can rely on natural forces like um like the burn rate or loss rate of coins matching the subsidy rate um and that's really the kind of thing that monero tries to do right they monero just says eventually we taper down to a certain limit of coins 
and assuming a constant uh, burn rate, there will eventually emerge an equilibrium where the issuance and the burn become equal. Um, and and so um, I wouldn't take for granted um, that you know this is only this would only be a stopgap measure. It, it could be sustainable um, for the long term, and if it isn't, that stopgap still buys a lot of time um, to to develop a fee market or or otherwise move on to, to different systems or or figure out how to deal with the problem. No, and, and and that's fair enough. And I I, I wanted to you kind of uh, loop back around to to what I want uh, something else I want to talk about with mm-hmm. with Tezos earlier was that you were talking about you know being fork proof and 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 uh, the the um, how how that specifically what Tezos is trying to do and when you're talking about IoT and all that you know it's it's very helpful for that. But um, I I've always had this idea of that. I always found the fork quite beautiful in that as kind of a, a concept, a larger concept as kind of like this uh, social ordering in that, you know, when you see in societies, when people have major disagreements on where they want to go, um, a lot of times, you know, you see revolutions, the French revolution, the Russian revolution, things get very ugly, very quick. And, uh, it, the the concept of the fork, while I, I don't think it's apples to apples per se, with especially you know Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash is not you know the same thing as trying to uh, split off from um, um, from uh, Tsarist monarchy uh, uh, monarchy into uh, communism, but uh, just the the concept though I always mm-hmm. found very interesting in that you if you don't like how things are you can if you get enough people or even you don't even have to have that many people right you can just go and do your own thing the way that you think it should be done and let the market decide by trying to attract people uh to to that vision right right and so um you know i think what you're what you're speaking to is that that classic um voice versus exit problem right like voice lets you change or, or influence the system from within but if you don't have a right of exit, um, you know you have a captive audience, um, and and without exit, voice um, doesn't have a credible threat. Um, you know, and so so people don't have the ability to change a system from within if the powers that be know that they can't leave no matter what, um, and that's a very real thing. And so on the subject of, of Tezos. Um, I, I would emphasize that there is technically a, a right of exit in Tezos, and that is that you can just fork the code itself um, and, and start from scratch or start from any particular state that you want. Um, what the governance system of Tezos does is it creates a shelling point so that the, the people who just want to go along for the ride don't have to make a choice about staying in consensus when, when there's a hard fork, I mean, Ethereum has, has their like planned hard forks every however long or, and Monero has their planned hard forks to, to kill ASICs every now and then. Um, those are, those are sort of solutions, but the coordination costs for that are extremely high. And most people just want to stay in consensus. They don't want to, you know, they don't have strong opinions about 
what version of software they run. Like at the end of the day, the perception is I have some coins and I want my coins to be spendable on whatever network most people are spending them on. Um, and with something like Ethereum, we, we've seen huge problems um, as far as implementing upgrades because they simply can't get nodes to upgrade. Um, and that can also hold back a network. I mean, Bitcoin has had, had similar problems as well where people like the developers want to um, want to make some kind of upgrade or improvement and they can't get people to update their damn Raspberry Pis. Um, and, uh, and so Tezos, I think, has the ability to, to help coordinate those forks. I would also say that from a legal perspective, Tezos is very, very interesting because, you know, one of the problems that, that comes out of uh, Ethereum, the, the perennial question is like, is Ethereum a security um, for purposes of, you know, U.S. securities laws? Um, and, you know, there are people who feel very strongly about this um, on one side or the other. Uh, you know, some people will look at Ethereum and say, well, it looks a lot like Bitcoin as far as, you know, how the token operates within the network. And we know that Bitcoin isn't a security under U.S. law. So Ethereum should also not be a security because technically they look pretty similar. But there's the other camp that looks at how Ethereum tokens were issued and, you know, there, there was risk capital being allocated um, to the Ethereum Foundation for that development work. Um, the Ethereum Foundation has an outsized role in, um, in coordinating forks and, and doing the development work and, and issuing grants to third parties that improve the ecosystem. Um, and so I think there's a very credible case as well that, you know, maybe Ethereum is a security. And, and that raises a lot of interesting questions because if, if Ethereum is a security um, or if, if any one of these coins, whether it's, you know, Munchie or Paragon or, or any of the other coins that the Securities and Exchange Commission has taken action against, um, one of the challenges there is that if this stuff is to be used as money, well, if it's designated as a security, that means it can only trade on heavily regulated platforms. Um, and there and there has there's all kinds of rules about who's allowed to custody them, and um, and everything that goes along with that. Um, and so merely de being designated a security strips away a lot of the usefulness of these coins. And one of the one of the legal elements for determining whether or not um, a financial instrument is a security is to just look at um, whether um, whether the value of the instrument derives primarily from the entrepreneurial efforts of uh, some identifiable party. And so when you look at something like Ethereum, you know, you can you can say, well, if there's an entity like the Ethereum Foundation that's coordinating hard forks, um, then that suggests that the Ethereum community as a whole is dependent on the Ethereum Foundation um, for that development work. And I think one of the really interesting things about Tezos is that they've made it essentially so that there, there is or, or will be in the future um, a, very, uh, a very plausible world in which there is no core developer. Like we, we have Bitcoin Core and we have the Ethereum Core developers, but what if we had a chain where there was no core team, 
where literally anyone could propose something and the community as a whole would vote on it and the community as a whole would migrate to the new system without any sort of, of coordination um, or any, any sort of centralized actor um, doing that coordination or doing that development work. Um, I think that's a very, very powerful thing from a legal perspective um, because it completely eliminates one of the Howey elements. Um, and, and if that, um, if that theory uh, holds weight in court, um, that's very powerful because it means that something like Tezos um, cannot be designated as a security. Now, I, I will say that, you know, there's, there is a controversy there. You know, Tezos did an ICO just like, um, just like Ethereum. Um, and so there is some question as to um, whether Tezos is a security on that basis. And they're in litigation right now over just that issue. Um, but the, the broader idea of, of Tezos, um, having protocol upgrades that don't have to go through a gatekeeper, I think is really, really interesting from a legal perspective um, and, and could inure to the benefit of the community um, in, in a way that um, I get the sense that a lot of, uh, a lot of commentators uh, in this field um, haven't really fully appreciated. Now, before I, we've been on here for a little bit, I don't want to hold you up uh, as a student as well. I know that you're, you're quite busy, but I said just a few unrelated questions uh, to to the more contentious topic. But uh, what are the uh, major obstacles on the horizon that you see for Bitcoin um, besides what we just talked about as far as for, you know, fee markets and all that? But uh, uh, other than that, what do you think is the kind of biggest uh, obstacle that you that you see coming? Uh, obstacle for what? I guess I should ask. Whether for whether for it, well, I, yeah, okay. So I guess I should clarify a little bit whether uh, you know it's adoption, um, whether it's a legal issue, you know, any of these things that will keep it from becoming what it mm -hmm. seeks to be um, a a global uh, money, whether it's store of value and second layer with spending. Uh, but what do you think is the the biggest issue that we have? I I wouldn't say that there's only one. Uh, Bitcoin has a lot of issues that it's going to need to solve before it becomes uh, truly viable. I think um, one of the main ones is privacy and fungibility. Um, you know, the, the fact that people's um, financial histories, um, e even if they're obfuscated through techniques such as, um, you know, address, um, unique addresses for every transaction or, or things like that, um, privacy and fungibility are, uh, are really important, especially as we get, um, better analytic algorithms that um, that can draw correlations um, and, and de-anonymize people or, um, or taint particular coins. Um, so privacy and fungibility is, is one of the, one of the big ones. Um, usability um, and, and usability, I would say comes down to two things. One is just that there aren't that many places that accept Bitcoin um, for transactions. And, um, and so what that means, the demand side of Bitcoin has been um, largely speculative. Um, and I, I think if we, if we want the value of something like Bitcoin, 
not necessarily only to increase, but also to stabilize, um, we need to have some churn uh, as, as far as buying and selling Bitcoin. And that means, you know, trading Bitcoin for real goods and services. Um, so merchant adoption, um, I think is a really big issue. And, you know, hand in hand with that is just the usability, um, which is that, you know, the, the wallet software um, is, is not super convenient. Custody of, of assets is not super convenient. Um, so there's, there's a major issue there, um, as far as, um, as far as adoption and, and the hyper Bitcoinization world that, that a lot of people want. Um, and I think there's, there's also a big issue as far as, uh, money transmission laws. Um, a lot of people don't realize this. Um, you know, they, they think that, uh, exchanges, uh, like Coinbase or, or Gemini or, or any other, um, a lot of them think that they're unregulated because, you know, that, well, they're not securities. Um, so they're kind of unregulated. Right. Um, and that's not true at all. Um, the, the regulatory regime that applies, um, will typically be one of either the securities and exchange commission or the, uh, CFTC commodities futures trading commission, um, which deals with commodity futures as it sounds like, um, uh, or uh, the the mode that um, the mode of regulation that primarily applies to uh, an institution like Coinbase is money transmission licensing. And the weird thing about money transmission licensing is that it's actually done at a state level. So what that means is that to to operate in the United States, um, an institution like Coinbase has to have a license for every jurisdiction that it operates in. Um, as you can imagine, answering to 50 some uh, different regulators imposes a lot of bureaucratic overhead. Um, and, and one of the problems with that, aside from the, the raw bureaucratic overhead, um, is that it creates a very large um, barrier to entry for would-be competitors. And so if we want to have, um, if we want to have markets that, um, that are efficient and competitive, um, we need to be able to have more people in the market than, than just Coinbase, for example. And, and there are more than just Coinbase, of course. Um, but we want to make sure that the startup costs for competitors are, um, are lower so that there can be more competition as far as uh, things like trading fees or liquidity. Um, and we also want there to be, I think, uh, more opportunities for um, to pool the liquidity. Like right now, uh, exchanges uh, like Gemini or, or Coinbase or, or any other kind of have their own independent liquidity pools. And there are, there are narrow channels between each of those pools. You know, like you, you make an on-chain transaction um, to withdraw from Coinbase and deposit onto Gemini. Um, but by and large, we don't have the ability to access the liquidity on both order books at the same time. Um, and so I think as far as, um, as far as improving the, the price stability, um, and price discovery, um, for these assets, um, we want to make sure that, um, that there are lower frictions for trading. Um, and we want to make sure that the, the liquidity that traders have access to is greater. Um, and so from a, a legal perspective, um, reforming the money transmission system is, is going to be a big one.
Um, on the institutional side, um, I would say there are lots of issues as far as um, things like uh, the custody rules that are in place. Um, one, one problem that I've seen is, um, is that um, institutions like hedge funds are required to use uh, qualified custodians um, but the problem is that there aren't qualified custodians because um, FINRA hasn't been approving them. Um, FINRA has been, you know, dragging their heels, um, and so people have a very, um, very narrow choice as to the custodian that they use. And I, I've actually seen a lot of um, a lot of hedge fund managers who are better at custodying uh, things like Bitcoin than the so-called qualified custodians. And so they're between a rock and a hard place because their fiduciary duty says that they have to, you know, keep client assets as secure as they can. Um, but the, the legal duty, the statutory duty is also that they have to use um, a custodian that isn't as secure as they would like. Um, and so they're kind of torn between, uh, between their their common law legal duties um, and their statutory du legal duties. Um, so, so that's all another part of the, the system as far as the law that's gonna need to get tweaked. Um, but I mean, you can see there's, there's a lot of work to do on all sides. I, I really wanted to thank you for taking time, you know, uh, out of your evening to come on and talk about this and especially for your patience with all the uh, technical difficulties that we had. Uh, where can people find you, and and uh, who do you want to hear from? Oh gosh. Um, well, people can find me on Twitter usually. Um, my handle is uh, asglidden, and uh, that's that's probably the best way for for random people to to reach me. Uh, DMs are open, and uh, who do I want to hear from is really you know anyone who has. Uh, something interesting or, or constructive to say, you know, um, I'm, I'm open to all kinds as, as long as you're interesting and, and have ideas worth considering. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to have a conversation about that. Well, it's great. And I will have a link in the show notes for, uh, your Twitter contact, as well as for the, uh, paper, uh, from the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance that we mentioned at the beginning. And, and once again, Andrew, thanks so much.